Well, good morning. It's nice to see you 10 people here today. And far many of, more of you up on the screen. I can't see you, but I'm imagining you right now. Um, so I've been thinking about this whole um, COVID-19 thing, as most of us have for the last couple months. And as we've all seen, this virus has done something that um, very few things have really ever been able to do, which is shut down perhaps the busiest society this history has ever seen. I mean, it's almost a truism that Americans worship busyness. We're out all the time, we're working all the time, we're doing things all the time. There's very little rest and very little ceasing from our hurried activities. And you can write as many blog posts or preach as many sermons as you want about the importance of ceasing and slowing down and rest, and very few people heed that. But suddenly we have a worldwide pandemic that forces people to slow down, basically shoves them into their homes, living, perhaps living with people that they don't even really like and come to reckon what it means to be a human being when you can't be a human doing. And we've seen that that actually has been very hard for a lot of people. If you look at the statistics, suicide rates have skyrocketed since this virus started. Domestic abuse calls have skyrocketed since this started. Depression and anxiety have skyrocketed since this started. And it's not so simple as blaming the virus. You can't say, well, the virus has caused all these things. Well, no, a lot of people, this depression and anxiety, this um, domestic abuse, suicide, it's not because they're afraid of the virus. It's because they've been put in their homes and they seem to have lost their center. They, um, and, and, and some of this is very understandable, right? We humans are not made to just be in one spot um, for weeks on end. We're not made uh, to not work. Uh, we're not made to um, be isolated and alone. But I think also this reveals some ills that have already been within the hearts of so many of us and so many in our culture, but we haven't really even had time to see it. Um, I, I listen to a lot of the news, I listen to podcasts, a lot of people talking about what needs to be done in order to get things back to normal. And the emphasis is on we need to get everyone busy again. Everyone needs to be able to leave their homes, everyone needs to be able to go to restaurants, everyone needs to be able to work, everyone needs to be able to get in their cars and go and return to normal life and that will fix these ills that we see. Then we'll see domestic abuse go back down. Then we'll see uh, depression and anxiety go back down. Then we'll see society improve. As if maybe it's the ceasing from work that's the real problem. But I don't think so. I think in some sense, yes. In some sense, we shouldn't maintain this as the status quo. But I think what this ceasing does is it reveals to people a lot of the problems that were already going on under the surface that they didn't have any time to notice. Okay, if, if uh, a man starts abusing his wife 
because he's been stuck in his house for six weeks. The problem isn't with him being stuck in his house. The problem is with him. And perhaps he's been distracted enough that uh, the sins within his heart and the sins within his relationship with his wife have been uh, mitigated. But they've still been there. And this ceasing has revealed the ills, the chaos within his heart. I think for all of us, if we reflect, this ceasing the last few months shows us a lot of things that have been in our hearts for a long time. I was reflecting on this myself, and I wondered if I could ask you if this sounds like you, because this is me. I'm talking about me, but maybe you're sharing this. Are you worried or anxious? Are you anxious because things now suddenly seem very outside of your control? Things seem outside of everyone's control. The government can't control this. Um, uh, the economy can't control this. We certainly can't control this. Does that, is that causing you to be worried or anxious? From the virus to political turmoil that's been uh, going on, turning somehow turning a national pandemic into a political um, problem. We seem to be doing that very well. Uh, to seeing uh, just the rampant immorality in our culture, even before this virus started. Maybe um, just the uncertainty of it all. Not sure when this is going to end and what things are going to look like when we all get back to work and uh, how, how bad is this economic depression going to be and uh, the plans that we made in the future, are, are we going to be able to really do those? Are you worried or anxious? What about restless? Do you find yourself restless? You're in your house. Perhaps you're working in your house. You're on your computer. Um, you're trying to do the best you can, but you've been forced to slow down, and yet you're not resting. Instead, you're restless. There is inside of you this, this insatiable urge to do things because you don't know what else to do. Do you find yourself distracted by your phone or your computer or all of the access to entertainment that we get? That was something that people started saying very early on. Okay, we're going to be stuck in our homes for a while. At least we have Netflix. At least we have things to entertain us, to kind of distract us until we can get back to normal. Do you find yourself particularly distracted right now? What about disappointed? You know, lots of plans for lots of people have changed. Um, you know, Lee and I were bemoaning the fact that our plans have changed. He was going to be going on sabbatical. That's a big plan that's had to be changed. There's disappointment in that. Uh, I have a wedding coming up, and our plans have to change. I'm still getting married. But it's going to look different. You know, Josh and Holly, last week, their wedding looked very different than what they planned. I know so many people who their school plans had to change, their job plans had to change. Lots of things have changed. And that can cause a lot of disappointment. We feel that our lives are upended a little bit as our plans are dashed. If you think about it, all of this ceasing has revealed these sort of things within our hearts. And I don't think that we would do well to just think, well, all those things will be solved when stuff gets back to normal. Because if we're honest with ourselves, these things abide. They abide long after this 
this coronavirus ceasing has stopped. There are deep ills within our hearts that only Christ can fully attend to and redeem. And I want to invite us to think about this, uh, not from the perspective of, I can't wait till things get back to normal so that things will get better, but instead, how can I create a new normal when everything returns? And I think that new normal has to be informed by this idea of ceasing, or in the biblical word, Sabbath. God has given us a unique opportunity to reflect on his Sabbath and how we can become a Sabbath people once all the busyness of our lives get back to normal. So that's kind of what I want us to explore right now. Because in reality, and this is not to uh, cause any more distress, but it's to be honest, because Scripture invites us to be incredibly honest about our broken world. Things will get harder once we get back to normal. If, if all the projections are true, this is not the hard part. It's hard for a lot of people. It's not to minimize how hard it is. But the hard part, this is almost the, it's not quite the calm before the storm. There, there's a storm. But the storm's going to get worse in these next 18 months from what everybody is anticipating. Um, just uh, economically, things are going to be very hard. It's going to be very hard for people who have lost their jobs to get jobs again. Um, we're, gonna, we're, we're going to see the repercussions of this for months and months to come. But we're not invited to despair because of that. We're invited to reflect on how can we be the type of people who can thrive even when it gets harder when things get back to normal. And I think Scripture is inviting us to be Sabbath people. That's the type of people that we should be in order to thrive when things get back to normal. So with that, we're going to spend two weeks reflecting on this idea of Sabbath and what it means. And I want us to invite us to think about Sabbath in two ways. One, to think about Sabbath as that one day in seven that we are called to cease from our work for worship, for refreshment, for fellowship with the saints. But I also want to invite us to think of Sabbath as the thing that defines our lifestyle even throughout the week. Because Scripture calls us a Sabbath people. We're going to explore that. But so we're not just going to be talking about what do we do on Sundays, but we're going to be talking about who are we going to be every day of the week. And it just so happens that Sabbath and Sundays are the things that inform us about who we are supposed to be. So with that, join me as we look at Genesis 2. You know the story well. God's just created the universe in six days. And it says this, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, we are informed that this Sabbath rest that God does on the seventh day um, uh, it goes even a little bit beyond God ceased from working. Uh, we're told, actually, in Deuteronomy 31, 
Uh, you don't have to turn there, but I think it's Deuteronomy 31, 17. Uh, it says that God rested and refreshed himself on the Sabbath day. And the writer uh, uses those words to explain to Israel how they are supposed to rest and refresh themselves on the Sabbath, on the seventh day. So we see here that God has done a work of creation, and then he ceases and he refreshes himself. And then he invites all of creation to participate in that. It says he blesses that day and he makes it holy. And if you know the story of the Old Testament, you know that God begins to emphasize this Sabbath day um, as a defining characteristic of his people. So they've been uh, in Egypt, and they've been slaves in Egypt. That's the opposite of Sabbath, right? Slavery. God calls them out of slavery, and then he says, um, almost immediately after he calls them out of slavery, I want you to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, just like I did after my work of creation. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see that the Sabbath is a litmus test for who is faithful among the people of Israel. Do you honor the Sabbath, or do you work on the Sabbath? And that becomes a theme throughout the Old Testament. But a lot of people have noticed that uh, when, when Jesus and the apostles reiterate the law in the New Testament, they don't specifically reiterate the fourth commandment, the Sabbath day, uh, in ways that they explicitly reiterate the other commandments. Um, yet, we are actually given quite a lot about the Sabbath in the New Testament. Jesus says that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, it would be very strange for Jesus to be Lord of something that no longer exists. Have you ever thought about that? I don't think that's how Jesus' lordship works. Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God doesn't make things for man and then say that it's no longer for them. I made it for you, but, but no more. That's not how God works. God gives us his gifts. He doesn't give gifts and then take it away. Right? But we're told something even more interesting than that in Hebrews. If you want to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. The writer of Hebrews gives us a cosmic vision of the Sabbath. And he ties it to the work of Christ, both in his first coming and also in his second coming. In Hebrews 4, the writer says this, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. He's talking about the, the Israelites. Did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying, through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. 
So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may, fa- may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Okay, that sounds a little bit complex and confusing, but this is basically what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Remember that Sabbath rest that the Israelites were called to observe? Well, they weren't only supposed to observe it one out of every seven days, but God was leading them into a promised land. He called it his rest. And in the promised land, they were supposed to enjoy God's Sabbath every day, essentially. But they failed to enter it. We know about the disobedience of the Israelites. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, but there's actually a better rest that God is offering. The rest found through Christ a rest that we partially attain now for those who are united in faith to Christ, but a rest that we also strive for, a future Sabbath rest when Jesus returns and he establishes his kingdom on earth. So suddenly in Hebrews, we're given a vision of Genesis 2 that stretches all the way from creation to consummation, all the way from the beginning of God's work to the end of God's work from creation through redemption into our final resting place. So all of Christ's work of redemption, the gospel is a Sabbath thing. Sabbath defines part of what the good news is that Christ inaugurated in his life, death, and resurrection. So when we're thinking about Genesis 2, if you want to go back there, We can't just think about it in terms of, well, God created the world in six days, and the seventh day he rested, and then he wanted the Jews to observe that day, but we don't need to observe it anymore, um, and, you know, but it's kind of a nice thing. Now, this is the gospel right here. So I want us to reflect on that a bit this week and next. Now, in order to understand the significance of what the Sabbath really meant for Yahweh, and why he even rested, because we know he doesn't get tired. We have to think about what his creative work meant. Because here's the secret of Scripture. You want to know the secret? The secret of Scripture is that the whole redemptive story is told in Genesis 1 and 2, and 3. And then the rest of Scripture works out all the details. But if you turn back to Genesis 1, you find something very interesting. It says... In verse 2 of chapter 1, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Okay, we have this picture of before the fall, everything was grand and nice and perfect. Yet, the second verse of the Bible shows us that things don't seem all grand and wonderful and perfect. Okay, the uh, The Hebrew words for this, and I just use the Hebrew words because they sound really interesting, uh, is tohu and bohu. Okay, tohu and bohu. Formlessness, or I think a better word is chaos. Tohu. Doesn't even sound like a good word, right? Uh, This is a word that if you were um, anywhere in the ancient Near East, you would go, oh, tohu. Chaos. That's not good. Everyone knows chaos is bad. Chaos, formlessness, wreaks destruction. 
somebody needs to take that formlessness and shape it and form it into something good because it's not good. So we have chaos on the one hand, tohu, then we also have bohu, bohu, void, emptiness. Now, emptiness isn't necessarily scary in that the emptiness isn't going to come out and hurt you, but emptiness is scary because you might fall into it. Have you ever stood over a big chasm? I don't know, uh, if you've gone into, you know, like there are places where you can uh, go into an old mine or um, you can, even, or even if you're on a cliff and you're kind of looking down, there's something scary about the reality that there's a lot of space in between you and the bottom. There's a void there, there's an emptiness there, and if you fall through it, you might get lost forever. So there's an emptiness that needs to be filled. So tohu needs to be formed and then bohu needs to be filled. And then we have this Abiding darkness over the face of the deep. Darkness is looming over God's unformed and unfilled universe. And the, bar- the darkness needs to be dealt with. Because if you've read the Bible, you know that darkness is the chief metaphor for evil. Now, in one sense, of course, evil didn't exist before God created anything. In terms of uh, evil being an act of rebellion against God, right? How could there be evil when nothing was created yet? But in another sense, this darkness is a symbol for something that needs to be made right, something that needs to be conquered. So we see here that the first thing God does is he says, let there be light. The light conquers the darkness. John picks this up in John 1, and he says the light pierces the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. We know that light was Christ. But here, it's already prefigured. Here, we get the redemption story already prefigured. At the very beginning of Genesis 1, you have formlessness, you have chaos, you've got void, and you've got darkness, and they all have to be dealt with. And that's exactly what Yahweh does. So in all of Genesis 1, you see that God forms the formless, and we see that in the first three days, right? Uh, He fashions the heavens and the earth, and then he fills the void. For the heavens, he puts stars and the sun and the moon. For the sky, he fills it with birds. For the sea, he fills it with fish. For the land, he fills it with animals and, of course, with humans in his image. So he forms the chaos. He fills the void, and his light conquers the darkness. This, right here in Genesis 1, is the the little hint that there's a redemption that Yahweh is up to. There is a setting right what was wrong. There is an ordering going on. Or, in the mindset of um, the Jews, and hopefully of us too, there is a kingdom that's being founded. And that kingdom is going to conquer all the other kingdoms. And Yahweh is going to reign as king over the entire creation. And that's what we see in Genesis 2. After he forms and he fills and he conquers, he has established his kingdom, the entire universe, and then he metaphorically sits on his throne on that first Sabbath. And he surveys his kingdom and he says, 
very good. And he rests. He doesn't rest because he's tired. He rests because he's celebrating his victory. He's celebrating the fact that he is in control, king over the entire universe. And everything is very good. But of course, we know the story. We know that he gives Adam and Eve uh, power over the earth as his vice viceroys, his little kings, and they mess up the kingdom. Here's, here's the thing. When sin enters into the world because of Adam's sin, Tohu comes back. Chaos returns. Disorder reigns. Bohu, emptiness, returns. And darkness looms again over the face of the earth. So what do we need? We need a recreation. We need Yahweh to step back in and do again what he did in Genesis 1. We need a new creation. We need the formlessness to be formed. We need the void to be filled. We need darkness to be destroyed. That's what Yahweh is set to do as he reestablishes his kingdom on earth and recreates not only a new people for himself, but a new world. And the whole redemptive story of Scripture is about that. And we see this picked up in the New Testament all the time, right? John picks this up in uh, John chapter 1, um, which you all are very familiar with. Um, Paul talks about, you know, uh, when he's talking about Christians, he says, Behold, you are a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. Um, this creation language is, is uh, teased all throughout the gospel story in the New Testament. And Jesus comes as that conquering king to establish his kingdom, but also the new creator. Uh, to reshape and to fill and to destroy darkness. But we can't think about um, that work of recreation, that, that work of redemption, without thinking about this idea, again, of Sabbath. Because what Sabbath is, is a declaration that God's kingdom is for real, that Jesus reigns, and that things are very good. That's what the Sabbath is. When God creates the Sabbath day, and he makes it holy, he invites his people to participate in the reality of his reign, the reality of his kingdom, the reality that things are very good. But we're in this weird stage of this whole recreation process and this redemption process and the Sabbath process. Because unlike the first Sabbath, where it happened after all the creative work and God and his people could look backwards to see everything that he had done, have you noticed that our Sabbath is on the first day of the week, not the last day of the week? Has that ever dawned on you? The Christian Sabbath is a Sunday, not a Saturday. Why is that? Well, one obvious reason is because Christ was resurrected on Sunday. Right? So we celebrate Christ's resurrection every Sunday. But also, this establishes a new principle for the Sabbath. That the Sabbath isn't merely about looking backwards at all the work that God has done, but looking forwards to all the work that he will do. 
Because we all know that there is still chaos in this world. We all know that there is still emptiness in this world. We all know that there is still darkness in this world. We know that Jesus has come. And in Jesus' resurrection, we know that he conquered Satan, sin, and death. But his resurrection was what's called the first fruits of the work that he is continuing to do and will finish later. So when we Sabbath on Sunday, we're looking forward in faith that it will be very good. But we're encouraged to already participate in that very good reality now. Okay, so let's, that's, that's the overall theological framework we have to work with. So let's get a little bit down into the nitty-gritty in four minutes. <laughs> good thing I have two weeks. <clears throat> if you pause for a second, and you might not want to do this, but if you pause and reflect a little bit on yourself, look inward, be a little bit introspective, you might realize that you have a profound restlessness. Not just a restlessness in, I, uh, I want to be doing something and I'm not, but a deep spiritual restlessness. Um, if you've ever read Augustine's Confessions, you'll remember that he starts out his confessions with the famous line, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. If you look inward, you see that there's a lot of tohu and bohu and darkness within. Let's reflect on that for a second. Chaos. Is there any chaos in our lives or in our hearts? Do you feel scattered, pulled in a million directions? Do you feel filled with anxiety as things are out of control? Do you feel like your heart is disordered? Things are not in their proper place. Priorities are all out of whack. Do you feel like your loves are disordered? That you love yourself far more than your neighbor? That your love of the created thing far outweighs your love of the creator? Do you feel disintegrated, apart, separated from other people? Is there uh, relational strife in your life? Do you feel like you're out of place? That's the work of tohu. That's the work of chaos. Now, the world's antidote to chaos is to take control. I see this all the time. Self-help articles, self-help books. Take control. Declutter your life. That's, that's a big one, and that's been a big one for a while, right? Declutter your life. Make everything simple, streamlined, smaller, declutter. Uh, remove toxic relationships from your life. Maybe you've heard of that one. Post on social media whenever I see something wrong with the world as a way to make me feel like at least I'm doing something right or doing something about it, even though that's totally meaningless. Organize. How many books are there on productivity? I've seen a lot of Christians put out productivity books recently. Um, productivity is great, but that's not going to solve the chaos in your life. Resolutions. I'm going to develop better habits. I'm going to get better. Medication. 
That's something that the world offers as the, the fix-it for everything. And, and while medication can be good and helpful, we know that doesn't fully fix the chaos in our world. What about just distraction? It's all, it's too much, everything is too out of control, I'm just going to ignore it. That's the world's antidote. But what's the Sabbath's antidote to chaos? It's an invitation to a new reality. A new reality that we're going to explore a lot more next week. But I don't want to leave you hanging here. So let me just give you a very brief kind of vision for what this looks like. What this looks like is your circumstances don't have to change for you to enjoy the rest and Sabbath of God now. Now, things won't be perfect right now. We still long for the future rest and Sabbath to come, but we are invited to participate in that now. Uh, the best analogy I've been able to come up with, go figure, is a scriptural analogy. It's the idea of betrothal or engagement. Maybe that's on my mind since I'm getting married soon. Uh, but the reality is we're not married to Christ yet. The wedding hasn't happened, just like my wedding hasn't happened. But there is something very different about being engaged and being completely single. There's something different. And what defines that engaged relationship is what's going to happen in the future. But that engaged relationship is real. And you are enjoying parts of that married reality now. Not the full thing, of course not, but parts of it. You are growing closer together. You are enjoying rich fellowship. You are becoming united. Your relationship is different because it's defined by what's going to happen in the future. That's the Sabbath we have now. It's a betrothal Sabbath. It's a, a foretaste of the Sabbath we have to come, and we are invited to enjoy that now. So are you restless? Well, there is rest for your weary soul. Do you feel like chaos or emptiness is controlling your life? Well, God invites you to participate and enjoy the rich blessings of his order, the rich blessings of his new creative work in Christ. We're going to dive into what that looks like next week, but join me as we pray a prayer of gratitude for what God has given us in Christ. Heavenly Father, we are grateful. We know these things are mysterious. We know these things are far beyond our understanding, but we thank you that you have promised us a rest to come and that through your spirit and in Christ, we can even enjoy some of that rest now. We pray that you would fill the emptiness in our lives, that you would reorder the chaos within our hearts, that you would pierce the darkness of our sin, and that we would enjoy the rest of Christ now and forevermore. Amen.